I'll be honest, the hardest thing is we have to live without our daughter, but the second hardest thing is that there have been a very, very small number of family members who have shown up for us. And I think part of it is they can't fathom the pain of losing a child. And I genuinely pray they never do. But we are having to find ways to deal every single day with their lack of presence. Hi, I'm Lisa Kefauver, and I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Do you ever have a moment when you meet someone, a fellow traveler on their grief journey, and you know immediately you're going to be friends? Well, that's exactly how I felt the first time Elizabeth and I spoke. Her warmth, thoughtfulness, and her insights really shone through right away. Elizabeth is a successful entrepreneur, owner of Primal Potential, an inspirational author of the book Chasing Cupcakes, host of the wildly popular Primal Potential podcast. She is really passionate about using her own experiences of transformation to help others do the same. She is a wife, she is a friend, and she is a grieving mother who is opening up about the recent loss of her two-week-old daughter, Dagny, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. She is sharing her story with all of us because, well, like me, She believes if we're going to show up in community and love one another through the pain of loss, we have to speak openly and honestly about it all. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm so honored that you're here to share your story with us. I am really glad that we have connected and I'm so excited about the work that you're doing in the world. It's so important. Oh, well, thank you so much. So I think our listeners know by now that um, I offer these conversations as really authentic and vulnerable and open conversations for people to tell their story of grief and loss and resiliency and whatever qualities that are really true to each person. Uh, My mission is to change the narratives of grief uh, through this podcast and through the work I do at Reimagining Grief. And that means we all have to get a lot more comfortable talking honestly and openly about grief. And so as I start each show, I ask each of my guests, and I'd love for you to think on this a little bit, Elizabeth, and share your reflections with us, to recall back your earliest memories of grief when you were growing up and particularly thinking about how were the adults in your life modeling grief? What did it look like? The explicit, the implicit messages, the displays of behavior, etc. And how do you think that shaped what you understood grief to be or what grief should look like? And did that sort of line up for you or not as you encountered this most recent season in losing your daughter? You know, my, it's tough to know. I think this is a memory or it could just be something I've been told about. So it feels like a memory, but the earliest memory I have of grief was my great grandmother's funeral. And I remember 
that she had soon before her death given me a teddy bear and I had to have been maybe four or five years old. And I took the teddy bear to the services. And I just remember there being so much family. And it was a a thread throughout my life. I I grew up, uh, my mom and my aunt are very, very close. And and there was a lot of um, terminal illness happening uh, with my aunt's husband. And so our families were always together. And I remember very regularly after school being told, you're not going to go home with your mom today. You're going to go home with so-and-so's mom because your mom has gone to be with your aunt because my uncle was so sick. And so to me, grief always meant family. Grief meant rallying around each other. And that's what I saw in my family whenever, even if it wasn't death, but it was grief because of prolonged illness or unexpected tragedy, the whole family rallied. And as you know, when I lost my daughter, it was right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and um, funerals in the state I live in were completely shut down. They were not allowed. And so we went one state over to have a funeral where not only were we limited to 10 people in the church, but most of my family did not feel comfortable being present. Mm -hmm. And so the model I had seen for grief for my whole life that really set me up to feel like I would be okay because no matter what, I wouldn't be alone, didn't show up for me. And so not only had I lost my daughter, but I, I really felt like I lost my family too. And I know that I didn't, but because of how I saw grief my whole life, that's what it has felt like and still feels like to me. Wow. That is powerful. We're going to dive, I think, deep into the experiences that you've been having over the last months and how you've learned about that. But I want to reflect back to you and to our listeners, what a powerful um, modeling that was happening in your family where folks were showing up in support of one another. It sounds like speaking quite openly Mm -hmm. about the challenges that people were facing, maybe displaying sort of whatever feelings that were arising for people. And it's just a reminder to all of us about how much we learn implicitly in our families, in our culture about what is kind of good or bad or okay or not okay, or what does something mean. And so what a powerful reflection that you shared with us that you had that kind of nurturing environment growing up and yet what a loss, a compounding loss it was to not be able to reap the benefit of that way of being in your family in this moment, you know, in this most crucial moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I I want, I'd love for you to share a little bit before we talk about the experience that you and your husband, Chris had over the past couple months around losing your daughter. I'd love for you to share a little bit with our listeners, kind of what journeys you've been on in your life that felt like you Um, overcame challenges and hurdles. I know you are a host of a podcast and you talk about primal potential and about people's potential and capacity. So I'd love for listeners to know a little bit first about sort of how you see yourself in terms of emotional, personal, social growth, resiliency, kind of just paint a little bit of a picture for us of what that looked like before this moment in time. 
Yeah, you know, it's even just thinking about it in the few seconds since you've asked it, my, my first reaction was like, you know, wow, it's, it's been a journey. My parents got divorced when I was very young before my earliest memories. And um, my mom remarried pretty quickly. So the dad who raised me um, was not my biological dad. And my biological dad really hasn't been any, any part of my life. Um, I struggled with my weight for basically my whole life and really felt very isolated because of that and dealt with a lot of depression and um, just some dark, dark stuff. I lost 130 pounds doing a lot of mindset work. I got out of debt. And then that sort of very significant personal transformation at the same time I started a business um, kind of was a, a part of the end of my marriage, my first marriage, um, because we just weren't, we just weren't going in the same directions. And um, I really wanted to make something meaningful of my life after a very, I was going to say a dark season, but honestly, it just felt like it was, it was a lot of darkness. When I was a senior in college, my dad who raised me, my stepdad uh, died in a car accident Mm -hmm. uh, four days after Christmas. And um, that was a, a turning point moment for me in terms of just how fragile life is and took me a long time to kind of get things together in my own life after that. But yeah, significant personal transformation, mindset transformation, financial and career transformation, and um, moved back to New England, which is where I'm from, and fell in love and was super excited when we found out that we were expecting our first child. And that kind of brings us to where we are today, um, having lost her just just about almost four months ago. Yeah. Wow. So, so much, so much. I, I, I worry sometimes to say the word resiliency because I think we sort of overuse sometimes in our culture, like just, you know, buck up and be happy and, yeah. and that we're always going to find a silver lining. And I don't think that's necessarily true or that's not a particularly helpful message at all times for all people. So that's the sort of caveat to say. And yet, as you face these different challenges with the loss of your stepfather and then the sort of real realization that maybe your weight and your health and your career and even your marriage were things that were weighing you down and not bringing you joy and bringing you sort of um, an engagement in life, you were able to, I mean, you took on pretty much every transformation you could think of all at once, Elizabeth. No doing yeah. this one at a time sounds like. It was like weight loss and new job and new relationship and new move. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you think you were seeing in your kind of what either from the people around you or what do you think allowed you to sort of make that pivot? Did it feel like a, a one aha moment as Oprah says, or was it more of a building? How did you, when you reflect back now, how did you see that pivot? Um, All of the above, right? Like there was an aha moment and there was probably a million of them. And it was just a crescendo of, of darkness and of pain. I yeah. was so unhappy and I heard a Rumi quote that said, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Mm. And mm. I realized that all of these things that I was deeply unhappy with, my, my health, my body, my finances were at my own hand. 
And the very things, like if you had asked me then what I wanted more than anything in the world, I would have told you after struggling my entire life with my weight, I just want to be at peace with that. I want to feel good in my body. I want to feel healthy. I want to feel vibrant. And yet I was the one, you know, binging on ice cream and Mexican food most nights of the week. Right. And that was kind of an eye opener because at the same time, I hated my job and I complained about it to anybody who would listen and probably a lot of people who didn't listen. And yet I applied for the job. I took the job. I showed up every single day and I wasn't applying for other jobs. And that sort of, that was a, an awakening for me of sorts, but it wasn't a things turned on a dime. I had to make painfully slow change. I mean, just taking one second at a time. There was no big, I wake up and all of a sudden I'm a changed individual. It really was years of one small thing after one small thing after one small thing. Yeah. And such an important reminder because we live in a culture that is so quick fixed, top 10 list two, five ways two, that I think we then end up feeling like if we're not seeing significant change very quickly, then what's the point? Yeah. And, you know, these, this reminder that, it's listening to your inner self into those inner messages, starting to become aware of the conflicts like, hey, I'm saying I want this thing, but here are my actions and not expecting ourselves to just, you know, give up ice cream and Mexican food all in one day. That seems right. torturous and horrible, you know, right. but like maybe I'll give up ice cream today and Mexican food next week. Um, but to just one foot in front of the other and to really kind of push back against all of those um, quick fix messages out there that kind of get in our way, don't you think, of being oh, able totally. to, to do that transformation and not just in the world of personal transformation, but those same messages get in the way of our own healing journey or transformational journey or the path that we're on as we're grieving too. So yeah. I really appreciate that you reflected for our listeners that it doesn't look, you know, we often see people in the magazines or read the article or even people listening to you or, lis or listeners of your podcast think, wow, she did all these major changes, but you didn't wake up one morning and it was done. You, d you put one foot in front of the other and the other and the other. And sometimes right. you probably stumbled and fell. Absolutely. Right? Like Many we all times. do, like we all do when we get up. So that's sort of the backdrop to um, this season of your life. You you moved back to Cape Cod. You met your now husband, Chris, right, Chris? Yep. Um, and you all fell in love and were planning a family and creating a family. And tell us a little bit about what that dreaming and that storying and that planning about your daughter was and just share what you want about the journey for from her coming into this world and then leaving this world. Yeah, I've been told since I was 16 years old that I would never get pregnant naturally. Mm. And I believed that to be true. And after my divorce, I froze my eggs and thought, well, if I ever want to have kids, then we'll just go that route. And so when Chris and I decided we were ready to start a family, we were like, well, let's, let's try it naturally and see what happens. Cause we had never done that. And I'd been working on my health for a long time and we got pregnant our first month trying and we were thrilled and we were shocked. And I just felt wow. like it was the biggest blessing in the world. And the just the most unexpected welcome miracle. And my pregnancy was healthy. I was 
over the moon 100% of the time, even when life was changing quickly and we were fully renovating our house during the pregnancy. So we had six months of the pregnancy without a kitchen. I mean, it was just oh like my errors. It was, it was an insane time, but no issues with the pregnancy whatsoever, no issues with my health whatsoever. And I went past my due date and had kind of like a just not a good feeling about going past my due date. And I'm sure it was just like normal first time mom worries and all of that kind of thing. And so um, we were maybe just about a week past my due date and they were willing to let me come into the hospital to take something to like soften my cervix. So we went in and they told us, you know, you, you'll come in, you'll be there for about an hour. We have to monitor for you, you for an hour and then we'll send you home and you'll come back the following day and we'll kind of do that again. So Chris and I went in expecting to be there for an hour and um, no bags, no nothing. And they gave me the medicine and maybe 30 minutes later, they came in to monitor me and I had a fever. So they said, well, you're not leaving. You're going to be here until you have this baby. And I felt totally fine. So we weren't concerned about it. It was a low grade fever, no big deal. And... Um, they continued monitoring as I started to make progress and started laboring. And my temperature was doing this weird thing where it was, was going up and then it was coming back down. And I would, it I was getting really bad chills. And then 10 minutes later, no fever, but I didn't feel sick at all. Just in labor, you know, the normal okay. discomforts of, of being in labor. And it seemed like every time the fever would come back, it would come back a little bit higher. So around maybe three o'clock in the morning, still within the first 24 hours that we were in the hospital, um, they said to me, we're, we're taking you in for an emergency C-section right now. My fever had just hit 104 degrees. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. So we, we went oh. back. My mom and my sister had kind of come down and they were in a nearby hotel and we texted them and we said, you know, this is it. Baby's coming right now. I still felt totally fine other than being in labor. And um, as soon as Dagny was born... Uh, my fever broke and it never returned and I felt totally fine and she was totally fine and they monitored me a lot more closely because they were concerned about my fever, but my fever was gone. She didn't have a fever. Um, she was, she was good. She was healthy. She started nursing right away. And because I had had a C-section, they were going to keep us for the standard. I think it's three days. Right. Right. And so very typical hospital stay, uh, the discomforts of recovering from a C-section, but she was with us all the time and everybody thought she was amazingly healthy, super responsive and alert. She, she latched right away and we were exhausted, but we were so happy and um, we went home on the third day after she was born, just standard for a C-section. And... Um, our second day home, maybe we took her into the pediatrician. Everything was normal. She wasn't back to her birth weight yet, but that was super normal for C-section babies and breastfed babies. Mm -hmm. And we were loving 
every second of having her home, even though the the struggles with nursing were real. And um, it was the beginning of, so she was born on March 6th, uh, 2020, which was right when things were starting to shut down and get weird because of coronavirus. So we had some family, but not a lot of family at the house and everything seemed wonderful and amazing. And when she was 12 days old, we had in the last, in the day or two prior, had me start pumping milk so that I could get a little bit more sleep and Chris could do some of the overnight feedings because with my C-section recovery, I just wasn't feeling very well. Yeah. And, um, when she was 12 days old, Chris noticed that she didn't really feed well at one of her overnight feedings. And, you know, newborn, sometimes that happens. We let her go back to sleep. And then the next feeding around 5 or 6 a.m., same thing. She wasn't really interested in it. Well, fortunately, we had a scheduled checkup with the pediatrician that day to make sure her weight was coming up. And it wasn't yet to her birth weight, which I was a little concerned about. This was on a Wednesday. The doctor said, you know what, come back in on Monday and we'll check her. And I said, you know what, that seems too far. That just yeah. seems like a long time. Um, and he said, okay, come back on Friday. Now, Chris wasn't allowed back into the pediatrician appointment because of coronavirus precautions. Only one parent could go. And so when I went back out to the car, he said, but that's not the issue. The issue is she doesn't want to nurse, right? We're not as worried. We shouldn't be as worried about her weight as the fact that, that she doesn't want to nurse. Well, we called the doctor and communicated that. And um, he said, you know, she might be a little dehydrated. So go home. And if you can't get her to take four ounces, um, then, then bring her to the local pediatric ER, which is local to us is about an hour away because she might be dehydrated. So we got her to take almost, I think it was actually three ounces they wanted. And I think we got her to take two and a half. Mm. So then we were like, gosh, there's a pandemic right now. She took two and a half ounces. She doesn't seem sick. Do we risk it and drive an hour and take her to a hospital? Or do we right. just see what happens tomorrow? And we went back and forth for a couple of hours. And um, for, for whatever reason, we decided to take her in. So we drove an hour to the nearest pediatric ER and they said, she looks healthy. She looks strong. She looks alert. It looks like she might be a little dehydrated or blood sugar is a little low. We're going to give her some IV fluids and you guys will be home in a couple of hours. So they moved us from the ER to a room and I, at this point was really sick. Mm. I think that the, I don't know if it was a C-section complication, but I had a severe migraine and I was bleeding a lot and I just, I wasn't doing very well. And so they said, you, mom, you lay down in the bed in the room and my husband and the nurse were tending to her and I was awake. Like I could hear everything, but I was just not in good shape. So I was laying down and, um, it sounded like Dagny was like coughing a little bit, not really coughing, but maybe grunting is a better word for it. And I kept saying, she doesn't do that at home. She doesn't do that at home. And they said, she might have a little stomach bug. It sounds like she has a little stomach bug, you know, where we put her on some antibiotics and everything will be fine. And then the next thing I knew, they wanted to take her for an x-ray uh, to make sure there wasn't a bowel obstruction. Mm -hmm. So Chris went down with her for the x-ray and um, they were back in 
10 or 15 minutes, it seemed like a second, and they said, we're going to transport you to Boston Children's Hospital. She needs to have emergency surgery. It seems like there's a, a bowel obstruction, but this is not anything serious or, you know, you name it. So what? I mean, at that, at that moment, what are you, you're in pain, you're practically I mean, incapacitated from the migraine and the pain. And now they're saying it's no big deal, except we're putting you on a, yeah, right. Like those two I things mean, don't go together. I'm sure it was just a surreal fog. It was, but I was honestly thinking like, thank God they found that there is a blockage, right? Okay. Of course she yeah. doesn't have an appetite. Like this makes sense. Like I didn't want my 12 day old, 13 day old baby to be going for surgery, but I was like, thank God they found it. You know, I right. just, I felt, you know, imagine if they hadn't, right? So thank God they found this. And then before I knew it, there was 15 people in the room and they were trans getting her ready for transport, but she started to decline rapidly. And I remember saying, but she's okay. Right. And nobody said a word. Mm. And I said it again, but, but she's okay. Right. And, um, the neonatologist looked at me and said, she's very, very sick. And I was then extremely alarmed and I couldn't do anything. And it was the longest time. It was probably two hours getting her stable enough to transport from totally fine and not hooked up to anything to clearly not fine. And everyone is in crisis mode. Um, and then Chris followed in the car while I rode in the ambulance and we had a, a true angel of a human being, Joe, our ambulance driver, who it was clearly experienced enough to um, know how traumatic that must have been for me to be, you know, in the front of the ambulance with clearly something's very wrong. And um, he said, this is going to be a long road. This is, you're going to be in Boston for a long time. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, we'll get an apartment in Boston because we live on Cape Cod, which is, you know, an hour and a half away or so. And I was like, okay, we'll get an apartment in Boston and we'll figure it out. Like I'll have, you know, somebody get on top of that today and we'll, we, we can do that. We'll figure it out. Like we'll, yeah. we'll get people praying. This is going to be fine. And then everything got bad. We pulled up to Boston Children's Hospital and Chris hadn't arrived yet. And they told me as soon as we get there, they're going to take her to the OR right away. And I was like, okay, good, good. Okay. Uh, I was not, they, they took me to a small room to sit and wait for a doctor. And I was not sitting down for two minutes and someone ran through the door and said, we need mom right now. We're losing her. We need mom. And I, I'm, 13 days post C-section and I'm running down the hallway being led by people I don't know. And they took me into the operating room. I didn't have scrubs on. I wasn't sterile at all. And there were so many people in there. It's a huge operating room. And there were so many people in there and they, they sat me in like a captain's chair. And then someone said, why is there a parent in here? Get her out of here. Get her out of here. And then somebody else said, she needs to be with her baby. 
and I had no idea what was happening. They decided to, to take me out of the room. So as quick as I was in, I was out. And as I was coming out, I saw Chris coming into the hospital. And he could tell by the look on my face that something very bad had happened. And I said, babe, I don't know what's happening, but they just told me that we're losing her. And they took us back into that same small room when we sat down and we weren't seated there for more than two minutes when they came in again and they said, you need to come and say goodbye. And we were running down the hall again. And Chris, poor Chris's legs literally went out from underneath him. Mm. And um, someone said, what are we doing to these poor parents? Someone needs to get these people someplace to sit. We can't keep running them back and forth. So this time they did not let us go back into the operating room. They took us back to the room and they said, we're going to get you the chaplain, which you don't want to hear. No, that's never a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as we had gotten to children, unbeknownst to me, her heart had stopped. There was no bowel obstruction. Um, they immediately took her into surgery to see what was wrong. And um, they did 30 minutes of CPR to keep her blood flowing before they could get her on um, heart-lung bypass on ECMO. Mm. And when they cut open her belly to see if there was a blockage, her liver and her spleen were so dramatically enlarged, but no one had seen this. We hadn't seen it. Doctors hadn't seen it. She didn't look swollen or distended. Um, that they were not able to close her back up. And they told us there was some sort of infection and they were treating with broad base everything to try and cover their bases. So it, we waited in the waiting room of the neonatal intensive care unit for probably seven hours. And um, the doctors came back and they told us that it was a long shot but they were really hoping that ECMO would buy her some time to fight the infection mm -hmm. and allow her heart to rest while her body fought the infection. And then they told us we were able to go back to see her. And I was terrified of that um, because when I had seen her, she looked like my baby and I didn't know what she would look like with her belly cut open and, you know, yeah. a dome over her, her intestines and on heart lung bypass. And, um, I was terrified and we, we had actually been not long before she was born to see Chris's father, who was suddenly very, very ill and he didn't look like himself. So we'd kind of had a recent experience of yeah. knowing yeah. that people can look quite different, but when it's your 13 day old baby, it just feel it felt a lot more scary to me to see her and thank god chris was heroic and brave and strong and um so we went back to see her and that was one of the hardest moments of my life because she didn't look like our baby and um we were able to hold her hands and to touch her and to kiss her and to sing to her and pray so hard, harder than we've ever prayed for anything. And after a while, we decided primarily that I needed to go to a hotel next door and get a little bit of sleep and pump. And um, as hard as that was, Chris was like, our baby is going to need your milk soon. So you need to keep your supply up and we need to make sure we have that for her. And so 
we went back and got a little rest and came back a few hours later, no change, went back, slept, went back first thing in the morning. And the way it works at Boston Children's is if you're a parent, you can get back to see your baby anytime. Even with COVID and everything had changed, you still have um, the ability to see your child whenever. And so when we went back the next morning, this was on March 20th, they didn't let us back. Mm. And I was immediately alarmed by that. And Chris was like, well, maybe they are, you know, doing a procedure and they need the time and they need the attention and like we would be a distraction. And I'm like, okay, yep, maybe. And so we waited for about 15 minutes and the doctors came out and they told us that, um, that essentially she was, she was gone. Um, she was alive only because of the ECMO, but that all of her organs had failed and that we needed to say goodbye to her and that we could take the time to have her baptized and have family members come and say goodbye. And we were in shock. Uh, I mean, as they said that, I think we just stared blankly Yeah, because... You can't comprehend the incomprehensible. Yeah. And, you know, you're at Boston Children's Hospital, one of the, one of the top two children's hospitals in the world. And we, we were like, what other options do we, I don't understand, like what else can be done and, and really nothing could be done at that point. And, um, my mom had been, had stayed overnight locally. And so we, we uh, told her that she needed to come to say goodbye. And um, we arranged for the family priest to come. And the hospital was wonderful in, a, in a, allowing us to find a way to hold her because she was on ECMO. So she wasn't really able to be moved very easily. But right, right. they coordinated with us to hold her during her baptism. And um, it probably took four or five hours to coordinate getting the the priest and a couple of family members there. And the whole time I was just believing that there was going to be a miracle, that something was going to change, that all of a sudden the monitors would come to life or there would be another option. And um, at the same time, it was supremely painful to see her looking so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I didn't want that for her. And it was also just very painful for us because it was just less than 36 hours since we had been home with her and, and, and everything had seemed pretty normal and healthy. So we baptized her, we held her, we took her handprints and, and footprints. Um, and then we left with a parking ticket like a valet parking ticket. The absurdity, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like, I just remember like, what do we do now? We just leave. And um, even little things like we couldn't go get something to eat because nothing was open because of coronavirus. And it was, even looking back on it, it still feels so surreal. A, that she's gone. B, the circumstances that we lived through in in the weeks following her death. But yeah, um, 
and then the autopsy paperwork and all of those very, very challenging things. It turns out that she had been exposed to a virus at some point in her first day or two of life and that she was completely asymptomatic, that most babies when they're exposed to viruses will spike a fever and she never did, or they'll get a rash and she never did. And um, they don't feel that it was related to my fever when I was in labor, but um, just unreal that she had no symptoms. So that's kind of, that's kind of the path that we walked up until the moment of her death. Elizabeth, let me just say that I am holding you and Dagny and Chris and your whole family in my heart. That is a surreal experience. Unlike anybody has ever gone through. Although many of the folks who are listening to the show, I know have their own story of sort of the absurdity, like you were saying, you know, here I am holding a parking ticket, leaving the hospital without my child. My child has just died. The sort of um, numbness, you know, and the sort of incredulity, like, what do you mean? There's nothing to do. You know, you're standing there in a room full of hospital. So I know everybody can sort of see maybe a little bit of their story in there. And yet this is in the backdrop of, as you said, a, you know, global pandemic that has shifted the, our everyday lives. And so it's just been just a very few months since yeah. that time. Can you walk us through how you're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible in your own personal sphere at a time when we're all trying to comprehend the incomprehensible in the sort of larger global, you know, emergency pandemic that is happening. When you look back at those first days and maybe weeks, what do you notice about how you and Chris were showing up for each other, for yourselves? Yeah. What do you recall about that time? There was the most incredible bond between us. And it was kind of like, I don't know why, but the word sick comes to mind when I think about it. And I don't mean, I I think what it felt like to me was it was so unimaginably terrible but the two of us were the deepest in it. And so that we were just connected in a way that I've never experienced connection with anybody. And we, we both grieve extremely differently, but in those moments in the hospital where we were both in deep agonizing grief, both literally hysterical and in disbelief and terrified and afraid and all of those things, I think I had a new respect for him and how devoted he was to her, even in her death. I remember um, when we found out that she had been transported from Boston Children's Hospital to the funeral home Chris called the funeral home and asked for a picture of her. And I, I have been through death more than Chris has. And I said, you don't want to do that. That's not a good idea to see her now three days after she's died. I, I said, you don't want to do that. And he said, 
I want to know that she looks more comfortable than Mm -hmm. she did when she died, because when she died, of course, she was just very, very, very swollen. And in his mind, he thought once she was off all of the machines, she would look more like she did when she was home with us. Yeah, and I yeah. knew that wasn't going to be the case. And, but, but the thoughtfulness and the, the paternal love that he had and the worry that he had for her, even after she was gone, it just brought us so much closer together. And, and little things like I was still lactating. I still, you know, was recovering from a C-section and there was a lot of like my physical care that emotionally was hard to handle and also physically was hard to handle. I think the stress of all of that really made my C-section recovery a lot harder because my blood pressure was higher and all of those things. And the way that he cared for me was astounding. Mm. And it makes me sad to know that most of our family will never know those things. Well, and, and it's funny because so much of the work that you do, I think is so important because there's this sense that like, I can't share those things with people because they're not pretty and they're not, they're not quote appropriate. And yet. They're the most real things we ever go through, right? It's the realness. Those are the moments of, of realness. Yeah. And like, they're also the moments that show who he is as a human and what his daughter meant to him that I want people to see and to know. But I also know that at least in, in my world, a lot of people don't want to hear that. Yeah. People shy away from anything that is related to pain yeah. and discomfort. We don't know how to hold our own pain. And so we don't know how to hold others. Yeah. And I think it's because as humans, how we relate and connect to each other is we sort of see our shared humanity. So when we hear stories of other people's pain, we can't help but then start to imagine what if that was me or my daughter or my husband. You know, we can't get out of our own ways sometimes. Yeah. We can, we're just not practiced at it. And so um, I think I appreciate the way in which you are able to sort of A, reflect back and sort of see Chris and how he was showing up with his love and caring and the sort of paternalistic nature that he had um, of loving and caring and nurturing and that you're able to appreciate that and willing to share that um, that that happens in conjunction with the most painful times in our lives. And we don't get to pick and choose the telling of those stories. Like we don't yeah. get, right? You you only saw that side of him because you went through the darkest experience of your life. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is Lisa Kiefoffer. And you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. And, you know, you touched on something which I think um, I'd love to explore a little bit. So you're talking about the sort of, um, of course, there's the emotional um, 
impact of losing a child, but you are also having this very, you know, physiological change happening because here you are, your body's still thinking, I have a child, I need to produce. And I know I've had guests on the show who've had stillbirths, um, who talked a little bit about that sort of dissonance between knowing that her child was dead, but her body didn't know and, yeah. and that sort of dissonance. How did you navigate that? Um, how did you process that both sort of maybe physically, but also just emotionally? Had you been prepared by nurses or doctors that this is going to happen? What kind of support were you yeah, receiving? Unfortunately, there was no support because yeah. it's not like I would imagine that if we had lost her when I was still in the hospital, then my doctors are still there. But when you have a child who you bring home and then you bring them to a children's hospital like we did, the doctors are Dagny's doctors. They're there to care for her. She is the patient. I was just the mother. So they were no more concerned with me than they were with Chris. You know, and granted, there was a social worker and whatnot in terms of like the death of our daughter. But for me in the physical recovery, nothing. In fact, the following morning, I called my doctor, my OBGYN, who of course didn't know. Right, right. But I was very concerned with my own body's reaction because again, with the C-section recovery and all of this happening with Dagny, my, my bleeding got significantly worse and we were afraid that you know something was going to happen to me. And so I had to call my OB and inform her who, I mean, she was shocked. She had just seen this healthy baby not two weeks before. I mean, a week and a half before and everything was, was fine and they were sending us home with it all clear. And even then it was, well, you can try cabbage leaves in your bra get some rest, try to relax. I mean, try to relax as if. Yeah. So did you have to really take a deep breath before throwing the phone across the room when you heard that or? It was, it was tough. And even little things like getting off the phone with somebody who knows you've just lost your child and they say, have a great day. Like, (laughs) you know, and, and again, it's not their experience. So I try not to hold them to the standard of, of understanding that, but like, come on. But you also get to be pissed the hell off, Elizabeth. You oh. know, I mean, like, yes, you can yeah. be understanding, but also come on. Yeah. And that was, yeah. that was so hard. And I, it ended up being that Chris just had to Google a lot of, a lot of things because of course, when you're lactating, you don't just want to like stop pumping because then you can get, you know, infections Infection. and, and it's very painful And so Chris was manually expressing my milk because we didn't want me to pump and then have more milk come in. We wanted to do just as little as we could to relieve the pressure. Right. But the emotion of that, I mean, I, the, the, we left the hospital around noontime the day she died. And so seven or eight o'clock that night and we're having to manually express my milk. I mean, it was just agonizing for both of us. Um, but there weren't really resources. I did go in and see my doctor a few days later and there was nothing from a physical standpoint that they could or would do. And, and they, they actually even wanted to do it over the phone because of COVID. 
Mm. And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely not. And I, and I found that at every appointment that was the, and I understand this is unprecedented times for so many reasons, but at every single turn I had to say, I need to be seen. And so here you are having to advocate for what yeah. feels like very basic care yeah. in the darkest, most tragic time in your life, yeah. having to sort of jump that hurdle. Talk about finding strength you probably didn't know you had. Right? It was ugly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was very regularly probably what an outsider would think of as unkind because I was angry and I felt like I felt like I didn't have a care provider because I had my OB, but I wasn't pregnant and I didn't have a baby. And my daughter had her her pediatrician and her neonatologist, but that was their patient and not me. And I just really felt totally out alone. And, And even like people say, get involved in a grief group and all of this, but none of them were meeting. Right. Again, it's so isolating and we feel so abandoned in our grief in quote unquote normal times. Yeah. But this experience that we're having in this global pandemic is so doubly compounding yeah. all of the pain, right? Of, yeah. of of grief for you. Yeah. Yeah. And so in this time you've transitioned back to your home on Cape Cod, mm-hmm. but we're also in the middle of a global pandemic. So sort of circling back to where we started our conversation, which is normally, of course, grief support, what you learned in your life growing up was that family is there for you. So how did you all begin to reconcile the sort of parameters and restrictions of coming together, um, you know, sort of having family show up for you digitally or otherwise? What has that transition looked like over these past few months? And what do you think maybe has worked well? And what, frankly, has how has it failed you in your grief? It makes me sad to say it, but I think that it has been 90% failure, Mm. 10% success. And I say that because little things like Massachusetts had said funerals were not essential, though liquor stores were. So we were not able to have a funeral in Massachusetts. We were able to have one in New Hampshire, but they limited it to 10 people. And I have not seen the majority of my family, nor have we seen the majority of Chris's family, not because of us, but because they don't feel safe with coronavirus, though they do feel safe going to the grocery store and they do feel safe sitting outside with other family members and they do feel safe going to restaurants and they do feel safe doing a bunch of other things. And I'll be honest, the hardest thing is we have to live without our daughter. But the second hardest thing is that there have been a very, very small number of family members who have shown up for us. And I think part of it is they can't fathom the pain of losing a child. And I genuinely pray they never do. But we are having to find ways to deal every single day with their lack of presence. And um, I don't have any, I don't really have much nice to say about that. And I don't have any solutions to that. It's been heartbreaking and disheartening. I actually, the one good thing that has come from it 
And this happened very early on because we sat at the wake next to pictures of her and her remains. And, you know, there were my mother, my sister, Chris's brothers were there. Not one single family member walked through the door of the wake. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that feeling. But because of that, Chris and I both have felt so certain that we want to have a big family because we never, ever want to feel isolated and abandoned. we never want our children to feel like they are alone. So that has been the good thing that, and we had some friends that have shown up that, that have surprised us and really blessed us. Um, Mm -hmm. But the family piece, it has been heartbreaking. Yeah. Oh, Elizabeth, I'm holding you all in my heart. And I think times of coronavirus are not some, so many of our listeners are probably again, nodding their head because as I said, and you know, it's so common for people to get stuck in their own fear and their own shock and their own um, resistance to seeing someone, particularly someone they love, like a family member in, in unimaginable pain, that they let it stop them or keep them from doing what they know is right. And I think, I think you and I talked about this maybe a little bit last time we chatted, but To me, I think part of what gets in people's way is this sneaky underlying assumption that it's our job to show up and fix somebody when they're in pain. And so, of course, they're all thinking, I can't possibly see anything or do anything to fix this pain for Elizabeth and Chris, so I'm not going to show up, which is so terribly ironic because, of course, we know there is no fixing our pain. The pain is something that needs to be felt, but what is compounding the pain is people's inability to show up. Yeah. And, and, and using the, and I'll call it that they're not my family. So I can have, I maybe have a little more freedom to have judgment that I know it sounds like you're trying to be, have fine grace and patience for them, but also hold your own right to be angry. But, and, you know, coronavirus or pandemic or not, there's no reason for folks to not show up for you in that way. And that's really about their own resistance to sitting with pain, both theirs and others. And that's not, okay. it's just not okay. It's why I do the show. It's why I do the work at Reimagining Grief. Grief is hard enough. And then all of these biases and these assumptions that we have about what our role is in showing up in terms of grief support actually make grief worse for people as if you can imagine anything worse, but it does. And it sounds like that's the space that you are in. Um, yeah, as you've you know, navigated this. Yeah. It's been so interesting to see people be creative for birthday parties and doing drive-bys and people be right. creative for graduations and they're doing that. And I'm seeing people share this stuff and like this stuff. And then I'm sitting here going, you couldn't do that for me? Like, okay, I see you seeing these ways of being creative. And look, I'm not right. saying put your life at risk if you feel that's what it means and come, you know, hug me and lick my floors. Like that's, that's not the level of exposure that I think it requires to show up. People could drive to the house and leave a meal on our doorstep. People could talk to me through the window of their car or say, let's sit outside on the deck, even though it's cold. I just wanted to see your face and know that you're okay. And that is important 
And it's, it's funny because when you and I got on video before we started recording, you said, you look nice. And I said, I just came from a funeral and here it is still very much pandemic days and coronavirus days and wearing mask days. Wild horses would not have kept me from showing up to this funeral today because I know how important it is to show up. And a week from now, I'm going to show up again and I'm going to go to these people's home and I'm going to say, what do you need? Can I bring you something? Are you okay? Do you need food? you know, I'm, I'm thinking of you, you're in my heart and, and I'll, I'll leave as quick as I come if that's what the situation calls for, but just show up. So tell me the truth. Has this ever happened to you? You find out that someone you love has lost someone and you're at a loss for words, you know, Q 100% of us. You want to send a card, but you don't know what to say. You find yourself standing in the store or searching websites endlessly for a card, but none of them are quite right. Too cliche, maybe too religious, too flowery, whatever. Just nothing works. So you kind of give up and just don't send a card at all. Or you pick one with a message that sounds something like this. He's in a better place now, or time heals all wounds. Stop. Neither is a good option. But I've created a solution. An authentic, thoughtful, and sometimes frank and honest line of empathy cards that is exactly what they need to hear. Trust me, I created this line of cards because the box of cards I have nine years after my husband's death are full of those hurtful messages, or worse, the absence of cards from people I had expected to show up for me. Head to reimagininggrief.com forward slash empathy to order your cards today. How are you then trying to navigate um, your own sense of self-care and grief support for yourself and you and Chris together as a couple? How are you finding ways to be the be the support that you're not receiving from the outside world what is what does that look like for you too one of the things i say to myself regularly is that grief can ride with me but it can't drive mm. and i say that you know in the days where i'm like i don't care about getting outside i don't care about getting out of bed i don't care about taking care of my body i don't care about eating healthy And I just say, grief can ride. It can be here. I'm not trying to push it out. I'm not trying to minimize it, but it's not my decision maker. And I try to keep it really objective. What's the best thing for me? And that has really helped me to get out and go for a walk every day, to take a shower, to, you know, eat some Brussels sprouts and some chicken thighs instead of ordering pizza. Um, That's been a big part of it. And as for me and Chris, we grieve very differently. It's It's been hard because when we were in the hospital together, we were very much on the same page. Yeah. Trauma, shock, terror, you know, just total devastation. And then Chris has been able to resume kind of normal comings and goings much more readily than not that I'm able, but then I'm willing. 
And I think part of that is male, female. I think part of it is postpartum. I think part of it is my body is still, still very much in mom mode. Yeah. And I prepared for 10 months to change my world, to take care of this baby. And, um, she was with me every single second for 10 months. So that has been harder, especially because I want to talk about her a lot. And I want to talk about my feelings and my fears a lot. And Chris doesn't. So we're trying to strike that balance. It's not easy, but we, we are working on it. And, um, I have a, a counselor. We've done a couple of like both of us together things, but we haven't found the right fit for that right now. But, um, that's, that's tricky in terms of like the family and feeling let down Chris's perspective. He's so good at just being like, look, it is what it is. We don't like it. We won't be that way. All we can control is the way we'll be. For me, I'm more emotional about it and it hurts me deeply. It's less that I'm angry though. I definitely feel that often. I'm gutted by it because I, I grew up with such a different experience of family support than what I'm getting. And I feel like part of it is I'm sad for my loss. And part of it is I feel like it's not honoring Dagny and she deserves that, that family support. But yeah, I just try to come back to the silver lining that I mentioned, which is now we have tremendous clarity about what we want to create for our family. And I just have to give my energy to that as best I can. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There are so many things you just said right there that are, I've got my brain is sort of um, rapid fire reacting to that. One of them is, I love that expression, grief can ride, but it can't drive. That's going to stick with me forever. And I'm sure our listeners too. The other is what you're describing about the hurt and the anger and the gutting over your family's inability to show up is really that secondary loss. I mean, you're grieving on top of your grief. And I think to just name that for you, for our listeners, is really important because I think we, um, we do a lot of shooting on ourselves. And for you, if you're feeling that and you're having that genuine reaction, even if Chris isn't, then it's really important to honor that hurt, that anger, that, and that, and to really name it and recognize that that's another layer of grief too, you know, and I think that's so important. I think the other thing that I'm just um, reflecting on after you shared sort of the different ways that you and Chris have been navigating this loss is so very common. You sort of spoke about sometimes the male-female dynamic. Um, You know, there's different uh, styles of grieving. You sound like somebody who is more of an intuitive griever. So you experience the full range of emotions and are more comfortable with strong emotions and and are sensitive to other people's feelings and your own. And um, Chris more being more instrumental is more sort of information and facts and intellectual. Yeah. That's sort of physical, you know, sort of like take action. And I think this happens so often in family systems, um, not just sort of, you know, husband and wife or spouses, but sometimes kids and parents or extended family members. And sometimes the pain of our grief journey is compounded when we don't recognize that other people just have different grieving styles and just sort of figure out ways to navigate together side by side, as opposed to sort of holding judgment for ourselves or others. 
Right. Have you had any experience where like, I wish I could just, why can't I just, I don't know, buck it up and get back to action like Chris can? Has there been some self-judgment there or how have you navigated that? Because I definitely know um, that can compound relationship. Sometimes I envy his style of grief. Yeah, yeah, because, me too. You know, and I and it's I can't say it seems easier because I I don't know, but it from the outside looks a lot easier. But I also know that yeah, uh, my experience physically and emotionally is just different from his physically and emotionally, but you know, today we were sitting in the funeral and we were driving home. I said, um, did that make you think of Dagny's funeral? And he said, no, I see the two as totally separate. And I was like, I, I don't even know how to separate them. You know, like the, they were both Catholic masses. And so like, you know, I'm just, I, I felt so much of that funeral moment. I mean, I was reliving it every moment. I didn't know how to keep them separate. So in that moment, I was like, that'd be really great to be able to do that. And I just, you know, like this day would be a lot easier if I had been able to do that. But, but I also don't, I don't judge my grief because I know that the depth of the pain is reflective of the intensity of the love. Yeah. And, and it's so a reflection I'm, of you, the the kind of person you are. You are yeah. a intuitive, emotionally aware, connected, available person. So like yeah. we grieve as we are in life. And yeah. so to not hold that judgment for ourselves is huge, I think. And I think for Chris, I know I said to him not long ago, the um, one of the social workers at Boston Children's had taken some pictures during Dagny's baptism. And so it, it was a rough, rough scene. Yeah. I mean imagine the worst thing you can imagine multiply it by 10 like probably around where we were um and i and i haven't looked at them and i told chris that i was thinking that maybe i want to and he said something along the lines of why so you can just see a lot of hysterical crying and i was like no no because that was a moment that as much as it was full of sadness like deep sadness doesn't even begin to touch it like just deep deep sadness there was also so much love for that sweet baby in that room and who knows if there's a beautiful moment captured you know I'm not saying I want to put it on the mantle but like I want to look at it and he I said do you resent how hard you cried and and he said yeah, I mean, I guess so. Like nobody wants to, nobody wants to express that way. And, and it's funny cause I just don't feel that way. Like, of course that's how I'm going to express my loss. I don't feel badly about that at all. So if anything, I feel sad that Chris hasn't embraced the healthiness of that level of emotion. Um, and I'm glad that I can, even though it's very painful. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I'd love to just ask you to, as we close the conversation today, think about what you might want to say to somebody who might be where you were on March 20th or maybe 21st or 22nd. What do you wish you would have heard from somebody in your life, whether it was a family member or a friend or someone at the hospital even? What, what do you think you would have liked to hear? 
I think the only thing even to this day that would be genuinely comforting is I will show up for you again and again and again, knowing that they don't mean a text message because just public service announcement from one person's opinion, a text message doesn't mean a damn thing. Stop doing it. It's cheap and it's easy and it's not effective and it's not showing up for somebody, period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just knowing that someone understood the value of being present and that they were willing to give that time to me and that effort to me. You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm talking to somebody who has been where I've been, then the only thing I can say is I am so profoundly sorry and my heart hurts for you and that you just take one dark, painful second at a time and you just focus on one second at a time, not a day at a time, not any of the, you'll get through this, it'll be okay. Nope. No, time heals all wounds, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You yeah. just you just live one second at a time. Mm-hmm. And then- And I'll be here for you. Yeah. Tomorrow and, and next week and next month and next year. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to keep showing up. Yeah. And then to know that they mean it, that they actually are going to keep showing up no matter what that looks like or what that takes or what that's, that requires. That is the only thing. And I, you know, it, it's interesting and I'm, I'll be interested to see if you have a perspective on this, where I'm at now and who knows, maybe in six months or a year, I'll, I'll be at a different place. I am, I am feeling like it, it has shown me something about the quality of relationships that I've had up until this point in my life that, mm-hmm. that whether I didn't put enough effort into it or I wasn't, I wasn't present for other people enough, but it has put me in a place where, yes, I am deeply hurt and disappointed that so few people have shown up, but it also has made me determined to show up more and bigger and better for other people because I know this won't be the only, the only tragedy or the last tragedy of my life. There will be more and there will be dark times, even if they don't involve death, where I want people to show up. And I just, I don't want to put myself in a position ever where people don't show up. Yeah. I do think what you're describing is something that's very common for those of us who've faced trauma or death or significant loss and then experience the sort of vacuum of support. And to the point that you made earlier about this experience crystallizing for you and Chris, your want to have a big family, I think events like this for many of us also crystallize what a real relationship means, what it means to be in community, in connection, to belong to one another in relationship, whatever form that relationship takes. And so I do think this early transformation that you're describing um, will carry forward uh, in your life and Chris's life. Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you for allowing me 
to show up and hold space and bear witness for you and Dagny and Chris. Thank you for being so beautifully open and honest and courageous and sharing your story and for letting us know um, what grief support can look like and needs to look like if we're going to be able to show up for one another as we all face grief in our lifetime. Thank you so much for taking time to have this conversation today on grief as a sneaky bitch. I so appreciate you. Thank you for the work that you're doing because it is some of the most important work in the world. And I'm just so, so deeply glad that you are having these conversations. Thanks, Elizabeth. Hey there, I have a quick favor to ask you. One of the things I love about podcasts is having these really intimate and meaningful conversations. And while I know in theory, you all are loving it too, because of the number of downloads, I'd really love to hear more details about what you think. So I'm hoping after today's show, you will head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, then leave a rating and write a review. Not only will it make my day even brighter, it will help other listeners find the show too. Special thanks to Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for creating the music for today's show. I hope you caught a glimpse of your own story today or learned something new that allows you to show up more fully for the griever in your life or maybe just found language you can use when you're at a loss for words. You've been listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch and I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.